when we begin to work through the, the parshas in Barashas, beginning of the Torah, it's really a time for examining the fundamentals. And one of the most fundamental issues is a subject that Rabbi Desler works through, develops for us, and that's the question of our perception of reality or our perception of the world altogether. In other words, how are we meant to see the higher world within the lower world? We relate to a physical world, we have only the organs and the senses to grasp or apprehend a physical reality. How do we use that? How do we, how do we see deeper? How do we see the world of spirit? How do we elevate ourselves <coughs> to see that which is beyond, beyond the physical? This is the classic subject of the interaction between Nace and Teva, or the natural and the miraculous. What exactly is the meaning of miracles? Why don't we see them today? How do we see that which is deeper within the natural, without needing the miraculous? This is a classic and fundamental subject. <coughs> if we're going to talk about a spiritual pathway, about mitzvahs and Torah, Torah and mitzvahs, which, which are really the tools of living within the world and yet transcending it, then we need to have an approach to, to this subject in general. So let's try to, let's try to approach it in an organized fashion, build up the, the concepts in, in sequence, and see, see where it takes us. When we look at the, the tension, if you like, between <coughs> the natural and the miraculous, what we call nais and teva. Nais meaning miracle, teva meaning the natural. Now, that dichotomy or duality, that, that tension, that, that, that's what we need to study. Perhaps we could begin like this. Rav Desler shows that there are really four levels of perceiving through the natural world that which is deeper. But before we get to the four levels themselves and we try to work through them, much as time allows, let us look at the, the basic issue, which is the transcendence of the natural of the of the miraculous above the world of the natural. The way perhaps to do it best is as we've often remarked before, <coughs> it should be a, a second uh, second nature tool by now, that in understanding anything deeper within Torah, understanding anything within Torah really, we look at the words that the Torah uses for the thing that we are studying. As we've mentioned before, who, who's not been here before? Oh, good, 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 good. So we don't have to go over it. We've said that, <coughs> very briefly, that the words of the Torah <coughs> are the agents of creation of the concepts or the objects or the phenomena that they create. And therefore, by definition almost, they contain everything that the objects or phenomena contain. If the Torah uses a word for a thing, that is the, the genetic material, if you like, that results in that thing in the world re, uh, being created or being projected into the world, and therefore the word will have everything that the object or phenomenon has. The best example, as we've shared before, is the word for a word in Torah, and the word for any object or thing in Torah are both the same word. A davar is a word, and a davar is an object. And the reason is that any object in the world is none other than a word of Torah. And therefore, the two must parallel each other exactly. If we look at the words, then I presume that idea is clear by now. 
not too encouraging amount of nudges, but I'll assume, assume that we're together. If that's true, let's look at the root of these words and see what we can derive about their essence from the words themselves. The word nace, which means a miracle, really means a banner, literally. I think we, we, we looked at this briefly when we discussed the, the question or the problem of Nisayon ordeals, which are based on the concept of the miraculous. Nace really means a banner or a flag because it is something raised <coughs> like a standard that you can see from a distance and, and is raised above the surrounding mundane or unidentifiable territory and so you can rally to that point people who dispersed and confused can see it it's a, an instant identification of direction and where the center is that's what a nace is it also has the concept of upliftment nace also means has, contains within it the element of the concept of being uplifted these all go around the same thing when a miracle takes place you are alerted instantaneously to the fact that the, that the natural world in fact is not so natural all that we consider to be natural, meaning self-maintaining, self-generating, cause and effect events within the natural, when we see a miracle occur, it's a shattering of the habit of looking at a natural world and not seeing where it comes from, and therefore it's like a banner raised that calls your attention to where the essence or where the source of reality really is, and that is the connection between the concept of a miracle and a banner and the concept of upliftment that lifts you up above the mundane normality of the physical world and shows you and lifts you and brings you to something higher. The word teva, meaning nature, is a fascinating word. That word is one of that class of words, and I, I believe we've, we've looked at this in other contexts before. There's a class of words in Hebrew that are valid words that we use as a people but they do not appear in the Torah. But the word Teva does not appear in Torah. It's a word of rabbinic origin. The Jewish people coined that word. <coughs> the Torah has the root Tava. That root certainly appears in Hebrew, and we, we need to look at it. But the word Teva, meaning nature, does not occur. That is a rabbinic word. If you look throughout Tanakh, to the best of my knowledge, you will not find that, that Hashem himself, that the Torah records the word Teva, meaning nature. The reason, is, the reason is relatively obvious, if you have any spiritual conception, and that is that our concept of the world, the manifest world, is that it really is an emanation of Hashem Himself. Right? The way we put it, usually we say, there's nothing besides Him. The way the Zohar puts it, is less us there's no place in creation or beyond it, which is free or devoid of Hashem's presence or reality. And therefore, there's nothing outside of him. Nature is that illusion. Teva, or nature, is that illusion of a cause and effect mechanism that keeps itself going, that causes itself, it has its intrinsic causes which cause its effects. Those effects are the causes of yet other effects. And it's a process that maintains itself. The laws of nature, as they call them, are the laws that maintain the reality of the, of, of the world. You don't need to, to relate to something outside of it in order to understand that which it is. And therefore... And therefore, that concept of, a, of an external self-contained, if you like, world, is unreal. Our concept is that there is no such thing. We don't believe, we don't accept that there is such a thing. Our concept, if you like, you have to use these words very carefully, but our concept is that nature is an illusion. There's an illusion, there's a mask, if you like, that is hiding, masking reality. 
the fact that nature is always going along the same cause and effect paths, the fact that there are laws which are constant and predictable, is a way of lulling you into the, into the sense of, into the habit-forming sense and attitude that this thing has its own explanation. And you don't see that everything that happens is really the manifestation of something that comes from beyond it. And, and, therefore, <coughs> and therefore, there is no such thing as nature being an end in itself, or an entity unto itself. And therefore the Torah doesn't use that word. You have to understand that if the Torah would use the word nature, then there would be a thing outside of Hashem. If the Torah would use the word nature, then since every word in the Torah projects itself into something real in the world, then if the Torah used that word, it would be the cause of an entity in the world. That entity would be something, as it were, outside of Hashem, that is self-maintaining and self-generating. And of course that's wrong. And therefore the Torah doesn't use it. Well, a place to look painfully, obviously, is in other languages. I'm not familiar with many other languages, but English certainly. English certainly. <coughs> many other languages, and probably all of them. <coughs> the word nature takes on an existence all of its own. If you read a biology textbook, and they start describing some incredibly, incredibly complex adaptation to the environment, or some unbelievably... But when you read a biology textbook and they, try, they start trying to explain to you, according to the theory of evolution, for example, it's not our subject tonight, but when they start trying to explain to you how it happens that certain things evolved, where the statistical probability of the having evolved is so bizarre, so small, that, that it's basically in their own words impossible, right? when they start explaining to you how, for example, uh, <coughs> how is it that bees and flowers evolved, to, you know that bees depend on flowers for their existence. And flowers depend on bees for their existence. So like, how was one of them evolving when the other one didn't yet have the features that it needed to keep it alive? Or how was this, are you with me? The fascinating problem. How did bees evolve their mechanism of procreation when there weren't flowers around to provide the pollen? How did flowers evolve their mechanism of reproduction when there weren't bees around? So they say, well, they both happened at exactly the same time, coincidentally, before the... You need your head read if you... So when they get to that kind of a point, that, that's when the, in the biology textbooks they say, nature has so designed it. And when they really get carried away, they have it with a capital N. Nature has so designed it. And when it gets totally ridiculous, then they say, mother nature has so... <laughs> that's what they say. Of course what they're saying is, you know, we know what they say. But rather than be forced into transcending beyond the system, they call forth an explanation from within the, within the system. They give it a name. They give it a name. Once you've given it a name, it's, it's nature. That's nature. Ah, it's impossible. That's irrelevant. It's nature. There's a constant problem, by the way. You know, in evolution, again, which is not our subject, they have uh, other impossibilities. They have a thing called, in evolution, they have the... Sorry, <laughs> fascinating to know. They have a thing there. One of the problems in evolution is how various organs and features evolved completely separately and happened to be the same thing. For example, the eye of the human is virtually identical to the eye of a crab. Right? It has ten layers in the retina, incredibly specific and precise, exactly the same chemistry, neurology, same ten layers in the retina, right? in the eye of a crab. Now there's no similarity between humans and crabs, I mean some of us, no, no doubt there's a <laughs> distinct similarity, but there's no evolutionary similarity between humans and crabs, not in their most extreme opinions. Do, we, do they hold that one of us evolved from the other? Completely divergent lines on the evolutionary tree. And therefore, you're faced with saying that the same incredible organ, in its incredible complexity, evolved twice, completely by accident. 
Again, nobody holds that it developed once in the crab and maintained an existence throughout all of evolution until we inherited it. They don't hold that. They hold the crabs over here and we're over there. They accidentally evolved this kind of eye and we accidentally, totally randomly, evolved the same, exactly the same kind of eye. That is impossible. Mathematically, it's imp- so when they have to deal with it, they call it, they call it convergent evolution. Convergent evolution means that two different things converged on the same feature. <laughs> that doesn't explain anything. Convergent evolution is a statement of the problem. But the textbooks, that, that's what it is. But if you, <laughs> if you read the textbooks that come to explain how this thing could happen, they say, oh, that's convergent evolution. Ah, oh, with a sigh of relief. Ah, oh, now we know. <laughs> Didn't say anything, you just named the problem. They have another thing called parallel evolution. These are fascinating things. Remind me sometime, we'll talk about evolution, when it is our subject. But the point is that within the world of the natural, when they want to deal with these things, they call it natural, they call it nature. As if that is some explan- explanatory mechanism that can, but it cannot. And therefore we don't have a word for it. They have a word for it, they have a capital N and they have a, but we don't have a word for that. The rabbis coined the word. Why? Because we certainly perceive it, there's no question about that. We perceive a natural world, That's quite, you have to be quite honest about that. We see a world that doesn't feature the divine, we don't see that. We don't see it. We see a world that looks like it explains itself, absolutely. If you go back far enough to the Big Bang, let's say, we can't explain that, but that was a long time ago. From then on in, let's say, from then on in, the thing generates itself, and they come up with theories in physics that, that, that seem to be explanations. So we see that, so it's legitimate for us to give a word to that which we perceive. I think we once mentioned before that the word sulfate in Hebrew, did we study that? The word for a doubt in Hebrew, sulfate does not exist in the Torah. It's exactly the same idea. Now, you won't find the word sophic. Or vadai. Doubt and certainty are words that don't appear in Tanakh. We coined those words, because we have doubts, so we coined a word for it. But the Torah doesn't have doubts. There was nothing created in the world doubtfully. Things were either created or they weren't. There's nothing that exists doubtfully. So the Torah doesn't have a word for it. You have to realize, if the Torah had a word for doubt, then there would be some sort of things in the world <laughs> that sort of exist and don't exist. They're sort of doubtful about their existence. But that's impossible. There'd have to be such a thing. And of course, there is no such thing. And therefore, the Torah doesn't have the word for doubt. We get confused, so we coin a word for our confusion. We call it topic, we call it doubt. But it's not an objective thing, it's a subjective problem. So the, sub- the subject of the subjective problem, us, we give it a name. Are we together? Similarly, nature. We perceive this thing called nature. There's no question about it. It's a legitimate human perception. But in essence, it's not legitimate. So we, who need to perceive it that way, we, we stuck within it, we give it a name. But the Torah doesn't name it. Is this clear? Now, what's fascinating <coughs> is why did the sages use that word? Why did they use this word teva? What does it mean? The root teva in Hebrew, we do have a root like that, has a number of meanings. It's also, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those words, one of that class of words in Russian Kurdish in Hebrew, which contain two opposite meanings at the same time. Teva in Hebrew means to drown. To drown. The essence of drowning is disappearing into the water and becoming part of it. To be drowned within. The nature of water is that it makes things like itself. Right? You become, sucks things in and makes them, you, know, you become part of that body of water. And the other meaning of tava is matbeah. That, that nuance, that, that, that implication in the word, that connotation in the word tava is matbeah. Matbeah means an embossed surface like a coin. Matbeah is a coin that the Gemara says that a matbeah has to have a raised surface. It has to have a a face, a face value that's manifest by the face that stands out. Are you with me? The coin's not a smooth piece of metal. It is a metal with a stamped image that has relief. It stands out. Right? That's, you to stamp it out is, that's a mud bear. 
What is the connection between these two, and why were, the, why were these two opposites put into the... Why was the word that means these two opposites chosen as the word for nature? And the reason is that the natural world has the propensity that it will drown you. If you allow yourself not to think about it, and you see yourself as part of a natural world, then you, you will get drowned. You will become, in fact, part of the natural world. You will move within it as part of the natural mechanism. You will not see that there's something that transcends it, and you'll become a victim of this illusion. On the other hand, if you look at nature carefully, you'll see that it bears the image of that which stamped it out. The very same things in nature, the same parallel evolution and convergent evolution, and the same, the same eye of a crab and a human, and the very same things in nature, that a bee and a flower, how they fit together, etc., you'll either see them as natural phenomena, and you'll appeal to the laws of physics and science and evolution, and lose yourself and drown within it, or you'll see that they're so incredibly precise, and so incredibly beautifully constructed, that they bear the stamp, the imprint, of a higher reality. The God of Vilna says, in a, in a particular Kabbalistic description, he says that the nature of the world is that it's the end result of a number of worlds. Again, this is, not, this is a deep subject which is not perhaps for now, but he says that the world is the end result of a series, a chain reaction of worlds, each one of which forms the one below it, or in the Kabbalistic terminology, so each world brings out the world that's beneath it in its image. That world then brings forth another world in its image, that one brings out another one, endless series of, of transitions, what we call nishtalsalus, chain reaction, until finally the second last of them brings out this world. And that is, that's the subject in its own right, and that's not for now. But this chain reaction, the Gona Vilna says that each world, which brings out the one beneath it, is like me chaitam lenechtam, that's his language. Chaitam lenechtam means like from a stamp to the image that is stamped by the stamp, right? What he's saying is, if you take a... Um, if you take a stamp that has a relief, uh, an embossed face, and you impress it into soft material, you'll be left with an image of the stamp. If you take this thing when it hardens, you could use this as a stamp and press this into another lump of soft material, and then when that hardens, you could. That's how the worlds are stamping out each other. Right? <clears throat> when you get down to the final result, no matter how long you look at that final thing, you'll never see, never see the original. You're many, 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 many stages away from the original, but you're seeing an exact copy. This world is the result of many worlds, each of which have brought out others, and no matter how long you meditate upon a tree, you'll never see the spiritual world. But you're seeing an exact copy. You're seeing it in a different medium. You're seeing it in a, in, a, in a medium of soft material that's not the original medium. And the Golan goes even further and explains that right is left and left is right. You know, when you stamp an image out, that which is embossed, is sunken in the reflection. And that which is sunken stands out. And he explains that the mitzvahs of the Torah are exactly opposite to our natural tendencies. Beautiful, beautiful thing, right? And there's a reflection in a reflection. Right is left and left is right. It's a marvelous, marvelous subject. But the, that, the details are not important for now. What is important is that each one is stamping out its image upon the one beneath it. Therefore, the world of nature is nothing other than the imprint left behind by a stamp that stamps it out, that exactly bears that image. You don't need to see the original. If you know the rules, and you know how the things are transferred, then you never need to look at the original. All you need to look is at the result, that you can picture perfectly that which is not visible to the eye. When you look at nature, if you know the rules, and you understand Torah, and you know how the causative energies work, all you ever need to do is study the world of the natural, and you know what the original must look like, even though you could never really see it. That's the technique. And therefore they called it nature, they called it Teva, 
Because you, ch- you take your pick. You either drown within it and become part of it, or you see it as the image of something higher, which speaks to you and exactly causes, causes exactly the opposite of getting lost and drowned. It finds you, you find yourself. Through seeing it, you see it speak of its source, and that's how you know what it is. So they use that word that has those two beautiful opposite connotations within the same word. That is, that's why we call it Teva with that beautiful Jewish sensitivity that expresses exactly the nature of the problem and its solution within the same word. Now, that agency that enables us most powerfully to see through the world of nature is what we call a miracle. We call, when we talk about a nace or the miraculous, we are talking about that which rises, raises its head above the world of the natural and announces itself so that you see it and in that moment you are not confused and your direction is once again clear. Once again clear, you can see reality clearly. You're not drowned anymore in nature. When a miracle occurs, you then realize, as the Ramban says, that just as that miracle could have no other explanation other than that it is a direct manifestation of Hashem, you then realize that all of the natural world is really that way too. And you then realize that all of nature is really miraculous. Agipta once said a beautiful, beautiful thing. He once said that, uh, it's a very beautiful sensitivity. It says that after the Jewish people crossed through the sea, you remember when the, when the, when the sea split, right? So Moshe Rabbeinu put out his staff and the sea split. After they passed through, Hashem commanded him to stretch out his hand again in order to bring the sea back to its position, and that's how the, we were saved. Right? So he asks the following question. Why was it necessary to do an action to bring it back to its natural state? We know that the natural always attempts to exert itself. Hashem always tries not to do a miracle, as it were. Right? He always wants us to have the, the blind or the mask of the natural world, and he disrupts it only when absolutely essential. It's a principle. And therefore, once the miracle had taken place enough for us to be saved, surely it should have reverted to its original state automatically. After all, the sea is always the way it is. Only it splits as a miraculous intervention to save the Jewish people. So there, actually, is necessary. Moshe Rabbeinu must put out his hand and he must split the sea. But surely after its function has ended, it should go back to its natural state automatically. It should seek its natural state. How come it stayed in the miraculous position until he again performed an action? And he answers, to teach you that the natural is also miraculous. It's no less miraculous. It's no less an erotin Hashem, a desire of Hashem that the sea should be this way than that way. You're only used to it this way. So you marvel when it's that way. But actually there's, no, there's the same instruction that's required to put it this way as that way. And therefore to teach you that, when it was standing vertical, he had to do the same beautiful idea. Which is what we say. Now, to understand this a bit more fully, we have to know that miracles, nisim, fit into two categories. This is very important to understand, particularly important because we don't see miracles anymore. We live in a post-prophetic generation. The Rambam says that for a transcendent phenomenon to occur, a truly miraculous event to occur, you need the presence of a prophet, of a Navi. You need the presence of a prophet. A truly miraculous event, like the splitting of the sea, could not occur without the presence of a Navi who provides the channel, as it were, of energy that makes that nace take place. There's a problem here, which is that the Talmud, the Gemara, is full of miracles which occurred after prophets left the world. But, and that has to be dealt with. I don't think we'll have time to go into that now. But, in essence, the, the concept is this, that we don't see those kinds of miracles anymore. And to understand this fully, we need to know that there are two kinds of miracles. You have what's called a nice nigla, a revealed miracle, and what's called a nice nistar, a hidden miracle. After the time of the prophets, and for, for purposes of this discussion... 
for purposes of this discussion, after the time of the prophets, I'm not going to go into the Talmudic period now, and those apparent exceptions, but we do not see anymore, after Anshayk Nesis Agdola, basically, after Hanukkah, after the period of Hanukkah, we don't see uh, Hanukkah, Purim, whatever, we don't see anymore the revealed miracles. We only see hidden miracles. Right? We only see Nisim Nistarim, hidden miracles. What's the difference? Important to understand the distinction. A Nis Nigle, a revealed miracle, is where a law of nature is broken. A Nis Nistar, a hidden miracle, what did I say? A revealed miracle, is where a law of nature is broken. A hidden miracle is where no law of nature is broken, just something incredibly unlikely occurs. Right? Example. Let's try and make this plain. Example. You're going for a run. And I'm sure you all go for a jog every evening. <coughs> run gold is green. You're going for a run. <coughs> no, you don't want people to see you, right? So you're going for a run outside the city. And out in the wilderness where you're jogging, you un- inadvertently run off the edge of a cliff. And of course you start to drop. You clutch onto a little twig, which is growing out of the cliff face. And as you hang there, dangling over 5,000 feet of nothingness, as you hang there, the twig begins to pull out of the cliff face, and you're about to become part of the scenery. Um, at the exact moment that the thing pulls out of the cliff face, it just so happens that there's someone standing on the top of the cliff who's practicing throwing ropes over the edges of cliffs that day. <laughs> and as he does that, you grab onto the rope and he pulls you up. Right? There's nothing miraculous about that. But you'd probably be pretty frum for a couple of days at least. <laughs> you'd probably be pretty religious for quite a while, you know, at least a couple of days after that. Because the incredible unlikelihood, the incredible coincidence of those two things happening together is so outlandish, so ridiculous, that you would have to see, you'd have to be a completely, ridiculously, you know, hard-headed and willfully evil person to deny that something special happened on that occasion. But nothing impossible occurred. It is possible. It is possible. No law of nature was broken. That's a nice nister. It's a hidden miracle. If you're a real cynic and a real skeptic, you'll say, well, look, once every couple million years or billion years, very unlikely things into me. That's what you'd say. What's a nice niggler? You're going for a run. You run off the edge of a cliff. You're about to fall. You grab onto the twig. As it pulls out of the cliff face, you levitate up and you float back onto the cliff face and I gently find yourself... You'd be pretty frum for a couple of weeks after that. <laughs> That's called a nice snigler. What happened is that a law of nature was controverted and... Right? That's what happened. No, that's a, we don't see that anymore. We don't see that kind of nice anymore. We see only the Nisim Nistari. We're incredible. We do see those. We see examples of the most incredible coincidences which occur because... And perhaps if I'll try and leave time to tell you one or two that have happened to me. But you should be writing a Megillah of your own life and seeing where incredible things intersect. Just un- in retrospect, that those two things should have happened then. Right? In uh, Shidduchim sometimes you, you see things like that. In many branches, areas of life. The idea is that those two things, that should have intersected at exactly that moment, which is why everything followed on from there. There's nothing less than miraculous, but it's not a... Impossibility. No law of nature is broken. When laws of nature are broken, we don't see them anymore. Actually, there's a much deeper idea here. I don't really... I don't want to go into too much detail. There's a much deeper idea here, which is that a law of nature is really also only a probability. You know that? Again, this is... Without going into too much detail. You know that what we call a law of nature, a law of physics, 
a law of physics does not mean that something must be. A, law, a legal law means that you must do something. A law of physics doesn't mean that a thing must be that way. Is this clear? A law of physics just means that we, if we observe a thing often enough, we note that it usually is that way. So then we phrase a law that purports, do you understand? The law of gravity does not mean that things have to fall down. It doesn't mean that. No object is obliged to fall down. Gravity just means that if you drop objects often enough, you note that they fall down. And they do it so often that the physicists phrase a law called gravity. The law states that objects, when dropped, fall down with a high degree of probability. But there's nothing in the law that states that I, if I didn't drop an object the next time, it would not fall up. There's no, there's no reason why it shouldn't. If it did, then we would have to rephrase the law. We would say that gravity states that objects, when dropped, usually fall down and occasionally fall up. I mean, that... Um, I don't know if you, you don't seem to believe me. <coughs> but that is what a law of nature means. It's also only a frequency, right? In fact, in science, there's some classic examples of things where exactly that happens, right? Exactly that happens. I don't know how many of you are students of physics, but, you know, if you were doing an experiment, let's say you took, uh, you, did, you decided to devote your life's work in your, your science uh, thing, you're going to write a thesis, you decide to investigate the volume of liquids as, opposed, as, as against their temperature. So you take all liquids known, and you cool them from their boiling point down to their freezing point, and you graph their contraction. You know, when you cool liquids, they contract, right? So what happens is you draw, take oil, and as you cool oil, you find that it, as it gets colder, it, gets, it contracts, right? And you find a beautiful graph describing the contraction of the oil with its temperature. Then you take mercury, and then you take paraffin, and you take, take every substance known, and you cool them from the boiling point down to the freezing point, you find that perfect, perfect line occurs every time. Now, you've invested the last 20 years in this project, and you've never tested water. And finally, just as a finale, you take water, and you cool it yes, down to 99, 98, 97, 96, 95, and you graph each one in your precise lab thing, and it goes in perfect, perfect sequence, of course. When you get down to four degrees, now you've just about finished your life work, and it's been absolutely perfect. You decide to take one well-deserved coffee break, and you go and sit in the cafeteria thing, and you're just dreaming of how you're going to startle the whole scientific world with this incredible discovery, and your friend says to you, what would you like to bet? And when you continue cooling water down to naught, it'll suddenly start expanding. You know what you would bet? Everything you have. Wouldn't you? And you'd be wrong. Because when you cool, cool water from four degrees down to zero, it starts expanding. Hmm? So what do they do in science? They call it the anomalous expansion of water. That's what they say. They say, substances when cooled <laughs> usually contract, except for water from four degrees down to zero, which anomalously expands. That's a law. Things usually fall down. Occasionally they fall up. By the way, why does Hashem do that? You know why? Do you know why water expands when it gets down to zero? Why does Hashem do that? He doesn't like that. He doesn't like anomalies. He wants you to be, he wants you to be able to see nature as something that drowns you, if you want to. He doesn't put blips in like that that startle you. You know why he does this? Because if, if this list was, again, if you look at it with scientific eyes, you see nothing. You say to yourself, well, water's got such an interesting crystal lattice that when it starts getting organized close to freezing, the crystal expands. I don't, I don't know how good that explanation is. You know what the Torah explanation is? You know, when a substance gets cooler and it contracts, it means that when it finally freezes, the frozen material sinks. Obviously. 
the, the, more the, the more the material contracts, the more dense it gets. When it finally reaches freezing point and becomes a solid, the parts that are frozen sink to the bottom. All liquids, when frozen, freeze from the bottom up. Is this clear? Except water. You know why? When water freezes, what happens is, since ice has expanded, it becomes less dense than the surrounding water, so it flows to the top. And the top freezes first. You know what it means? That when rivers and lakes and oceans freeze in the winter, they freeze a layer of ice on the top. And ice is an incredibly good thermal blanket that keeps the water warm underneath, and everything survives, and that's why you're here. Life on Earth continues, because every winter, and all the bodies of water that the world, the world derives its life, form from, life forms from, they all have sealed themselves in with a layer of ice on the top, so that the fish and everything else survive. That's pretty crafty. That's pretty crafty. That's very cunning. And that's why there's a spring next year, and that's why everything's still alive. It's very clever. He does it with water, because, you see, he doesn't need to do it with mercury or paraffin or oil. Right? You have to know how to look at nature. If you look at nature, well... Oh, you know, things you know, occasionally that. Well, no, you're not looking. You're not looking. You're not looking. You have to look at nature carefully, understand. Look, what, look what's happening here. It's, it's, well, it's a, you do an experiment like that and you find water, does it? It's not, it's not to making you ravingly from. <laughs> Raving with religious uh, fervor. Right. Anyway, that's the way to look at nature. Now, so a, a law of physics is really also only a description of frequency. Do you understand? When a, when a law of nature is broken, it's also only an incredibly unlikely event. Can you see that? There's, not, are you with me? There's no reason why it shouldn't be that way. There's no reason why it cannot be that way. It's only that it normally is not that way. So when it happens that way, it's incredibly unusual. It makes you sit up and take notice. But intrinsically from a Torah perspective, there's no real difference whether the thing fell up or not. Are you with me? However, to our perception, there's a big difference. To our perception, there are laws of nature. When those are not broken, we say we saw a nister, a hidden miracle. When we saw a law of nature broken and something floats upwards, then we say we saw a nisnigla, a revealed miracle. There's a big distinction in our eyes. We only see today the hidden version. We'll try and come back to this a little bit later. Now, that is the introduction to the subject of nis and teva, miracle and Nature. Let's now look at the four levels. Do we have uh, more energy? Yes, are you still with me? No one's sure. No one's sure. <laughs> well, let us work through the four levels of perception and see how deep one can go in one's understanding of this, of this thing. As you go through these levels, you should try to identify on which level you personally are. I'm not asking you for a show of hands. But how deep is your perception? How much have you trained yourself in your spiritual work how deeply do you see nature? How clearly do you see Hashem's hand within the natural world? Right? We'll start at the bottom and we'll work up to the higher levels. Right? As we go through, try to identify for yourself. No doubt for most of you, you have to wait till the very end of the talk. But let's just see if you can place what your level of perception is as we, as we move through them. The first level is a person who looks at the natural world, look at the world of Teva, they look at the world of nature, and they relate, they see Hashem in the world of nature in the following way. Let me give an example. The person on this level, this is the lowest, okay? This is the lowliest. This is no place to be. This person on this lowest level perceives Hashem in nature in the following way. For example, let's say such a person is praying. Such a person is davening, right? This person is davening very intensely to Hashem. Of course, we're talking about somebody on the first level is davening to Hashem. 
Somebody who's not even doing that is not on any of the levels. Somebody who sees themselves as part of the natural world is not a spiritual pathway. Somebody who doesn't think there is anything up there. He thinks he's just an amoeba or a worm or a gorilla that accidentally evolved like a crab. Such a person is uh, a crab or a gorilla, whatever it is, right? Such a person is... Are you with me? The person not relating to anything outside, you can't call that a spiritual path. Somebody who thinks that the world is natural and he himself or she herself is just a biological organism, that's not a level. Is this clear? We're talking about people who are already working on seeing something. So the first level of somebody who's looking to see something is a person who's doubling to Hashem. What's the nature of this person's tefillah? Let's say next Monday morning, you have a very important meeting. You've got to go meet somebody, you're going to have an interview, it's going to be very important, a lot of your future is going to depend on it. Uh, very, very important. This person is saying, Hashem, please, I've got a meeting next Monday morning, and I'm asking you, please, let it be. Let it happen, let it happen, let it be successful. But that's how this person is doubling. That's, that's the first level. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with it is as follows. This person understands, stay carefully with me, okay? It's a little humiliating when... Uh, can be, unfortunately, a little humiliating. This person is doubling like this. They understand that the world has a certain cause and effect reaction. Things happen. Things cause other things. In other words... Why am I going to have that meeting next Monday morning? Because I'm going to try and get there. There's a certain sequence of events that will get me to that meeting. The other person who has to get there to the meeting is also a sequence of events that will be required to get them there. In all probability, we'll meet. There's no reason why we shouldn't meet next Monday morning. Unfortunately, very often things like that get a little bit... They go a little off. What happens? A lot of things can get in the way. There are a lot of punctures and accidents and viruses and bacteria and, and hangovers and who knows what can get in the way of me and that meeting next Monday morning, right? That means, if all goes according to plan, and all fits into the natural pathway, then I'll get there, and the person will get there, and I'll say what I have to say, and he'll say what he has to say, and it'll all be okay. But if something unusual happens, and there's an unusual weather conditions, or epidemic of some kind of virus, or who knows what, then something may get in the way. You understand? That means, any one of these events is very unlikely, but the chance that something will happen, the chance that something will happen that will knock my meeting out of sync is, not, is quite reasonable. That does quite often happen, that things have to get cancelled. The person doubling to Hashem like this, Hashem, please let it be. You know what this person really means? Hashem, let the world take its natural course. Please don't interfere. <laughs> That's what they're really asking. Hashem, just don't interfere! Let it happen naturally, right? Let the things happen the way they normally do. I know, you, I know you're in control. I know you're in control. I know if you want to put a spanner in the works and interfere, you can do so. Please stay out of it. Just, you know, let me get there. Let the person get there. Let me handle it. Just don't interfere. That's what this person is really saying. Can you see that? See, the problem here, that this person knows Hashem exists. No problem. Tremendous faith. Tremendous emunah. This person knows that Hashem is master of the world. Absolutely no problem. But this person understands that the world runs by itself and Hashem is outside of it. Sure, he can interfere at any point. Of course, he created it. He maintains power. He wants to put his finger in and stop it all right. Of course, he can do that. No question. But if he doesn't, it runs by itself. Do you understand what's happening? This person has in his mind a dichotomy between the natural world as being a real entity and Hashem as being outside of the natural world who has total power, but it's not Einoid Milvadoi. This person is way off from a level of Hashem being everything that there is. That is no natural world. Is all Hashem. This person hasn't come near that understanding. Are we together? Clear? Therefore, when you dive in Hashem, let it all go naturally. Please, just let it be. Let it just go the way it normally does. But 
Stay out of it. Now, let's go to the second level. <coughs> the second level <coughs> is much higher than this. Now we're looking out for your level, right? We're all looking out for our own level. <coughs> the second level is a person who doesn't think that nature has any reality at all. Not, it never moves on its own. There's no such thing as a... You know, the first level is in philosophy, they call it the watchmaker theory, in general philosophy. That means that Hashem is present. He did create the world. Impossible that it did it himself, itself. Hashem created the world and he wound it up and then walked away like a man who builds a watch, winds it up to run and then walks away to do something else. The world runs itself by its own intrinsic clockwork. That's called the watchmaker theory. But in philosophy, that's what they call it. You can accept that Hashem created the world, only you can't accept that he's involved with it now. It's running itself by the laws of nature and physics, etc. That's called the watchmaker theory. <coughs> the second level, there's no watch that runs by itself. This person never for a moment thinks that nature has its own self-generating pattern. This person understands that every single thing that happens, every, single, every time a leaf falls from a tree, Hashem is doing that directly. <coughs> every blade of grass that moves, <coughs> every, rain, every drop of rain that falls, <coughs> every single breath you take, <coughs> every vibration <coughs> of every atom, Hashem is doing it absolutely directly. There's no gap at all. Nothing happens by itself. This, concept, this is the second level. This is called that nature is a kli biyad habayre. Nature is a tool in the hand of the Creator. That's what it is. No tool ever moves unless the hand moves the tool. Okay? And therefore, nothing in the world of nature, no object falls because of a thing called gravity. Objects fall because right now Hashem is doing that. He's taking this thing in His hand and He's moving it. Okay? Every rustle of a leaf in the wind, He Himself is doing. There's nothing divorced from Him. And every object in the physical world and all the worlds is nothing other than a tool in His hand. And this conception of nature is nothing other than a tool in his hand that he manipulates. Okay? Not bad, right? What's wrong with this level? <coughs> What's wrong with this level? What's wrong with this level is, that first of all, if you think about it for a moment, you'll realize that a lot of the first level's problem is still here. Because if this person sees that nature is what it is and Hashem manipulates it, he's still thinking that the two things. Only they're not disconnected anymore. The first person thought that nature runs by itself. Hashem gets involved when he wants to. If he doesn't, it runs by itself. This person thinks nothing runs by itself. Hashem is running it all the time. But there's still Hashem and nature. There's the, there's the user of the tool and the one who uses the tool. This person manufactured the tool and he holds it and he never, never lets it go. But there's him and the tool. That is not a original body. Are we together? To put a bit more, a bit more sharply and a bit more beautifully... Stay, stay with me carefully. When you talk about a tool, a kli, a tool always implies a deficiency on the part of the one who used the tool. No one ever uses a tool if they could have done it without the tool. The way, the way, are you with me? <coughs> if, you know, if you could write without one of these, you wouldn't use this. If you could write with your finger, you'd write with your finger. The only reason you, you write with a pen is because you can't write with your, with your finger. It's incredibly uh, efficient invention. And you use it, no doubt, beautifully and masterfully. But the point is, you need it. The tool is used in a place where you yourself... Are you with me? You, the tool extends you into a place where you don't go yourself. <coughs> There's a deep implication <coughs> of deficiency on the part, yes, of the one who uses the tool. Rav, Rav, Rav Miller and Gates usually gives a very beautiful 
example. He says that, you know, sometimes you go visit somebody and you walk into their bathroom. And on the side of the bath, you find a long plastic handle with a brush on the end. You know what that thing's for? It's for washing your back. You know why? You can't get there without it. Nobody washes their nose with that thing. (laughs) Why? Because where you can get without it, you don't use it. You always use a tool to do something you can't do without the tool. Is this plain? If you run a business and you can't manage all your customers, so you take in a help, you you hire someone else to help you, that's fantastic, it's good, it's great. But because you don't... (laughs) If you could do it yourself, you wouldn't need to extend yourself into this assistant. So if Hashem uses nature as a tool, philosophically it implies a deficiency, in a sense. Because if he could do it himself, then he wouldn't need... Okay. The third level, right? now we must be getting close to <coughs> some of us. <coughs> the third level is someone who doesn't think that there's any distinction at all between Hashem and nature. This person doesn't think that nature is a tool, it's not independent. He doesn't see it as a tool. This person sees that every single thing that happens in the natural world is Hashem himself. Hashem himself. There's no tool in the hand of, there's no tools and users. It's all Einoid Milvadi, just Hashem himself. That's all there is. Maybe when you're six or seven years old, you're supposed to think that Hashem Echad means there's only one. But that's not its correct meaning. It's not its deep meaning. It's deep meaning. Like we give an intelligent ten-year-old the credit, credit for being able to figure out that if he's absolute, there can only be one of him. This is what we mean. And we say... <coughs> When we say that Hashem Echad, Hashem is one, we don't mean one as opposed to two or three. We mean one as opposed to anything else at all. When we say one, we mean there isn't anything else at all, not even me. There's no me, there's no you, there's no up, there's no down. There is Hashem that's all there is. That's what we mean by Echad. Are you with me? Not one and not two. We mean one and not anything else at all. And of course you shouldn't say Echad too long. Because you might forget to come down. Right? You say it a certain concentration and then you come down again into the world of what appears to be the differentiated reality, right? That's what you do. That's the correct meaning. This person on the third level realizes there's no such thing as nature. It's an artifice. It's an illusion. There is no such thing. There's only Hashem. Now, we have to ask a couple of questions. First of all, what's wrong with that? What's the fourth level? What's the fourth level? I don't know if we'll have time to go into the fourth level tonight. Fourth level, real, beautiful, beautiful, Kabbalistic insight into to what it is. But let's at least try this evening to understand the third the third level. Those of you who are on the fourth level of course will excuse me while I just explain what the third level is. But um, <coughs> the third level is someone who think now one of the fundamental questions we have to ask about the third level is like this. There's a hallmark of being on the third level. If you wish to know if you're on this level right? If you wish to know if you're on this level, <laughs> if you wish to know if anyone is on this level, the, the uh, quality of a person on this level, the requirement is that they can perform miracles at will. Okay? The, the, the requirement, yes, the definition of someone on the third level is somebody who can manipulate the physical at will. Huh? We love to understand how this is, but that's what it is. When Khalina Bendosa came home, right, came home one day, they were very, very poor, and it turned out that um, his daughter had poured 
vinegar into the Shabbos candles instead of oil. It was a tragedy because they didn't have, it was all they had. And <coughs> she was upset. And he said to her, what's the problem? <coughs> Let one who says that oil should burn, say that vinegar should burn. So she lit the vinegar and it burnt. Incidentally, this is a little unpleasant, but the Gemara says that she was on a higher level. His wife was on a higher level. You remember the same Gemara says that she, they were so poor that she didn't have challah to bake. She didn't have dough to bake challah, no flour. So when all the other women used to bake the challah, she was so embarrassed and so ashamed that she used to light a fire under her oven as well. That they shouldn't know that she wasn't baking challah. But one or two of the women must have made a comment. And somebody opened her oven or it got opened and there were challahs inside. But there been a number of examples where she was in fact higher than he was. It was probably a misprint. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but there, is that, there is that discussion. Now, and there, the Gemara, there's many, many examples of people at this level. The Gemara says, Rachelina once put his foot over the hole of an aroid. An aroid is like a poisonous adder, not a viper. And the bite of that snake is lethal. But he put his foot over it to show his students that snakes don't kill, only sin kills. In fact, what happened was the snake crawled out, bit him, and it died. Some of the commentaries ask how he was allowed to endanger himself to teach this principle. You can't put yourself in danger to teach your students a certain thing. And they answer that there was no danger. There was no danger. When you're on the third level, <laughs> there's no danger. He didn't endanger himself. <laughs> it was absolutely clear. Huh? A person on the third level can do miracles. Huh? Marukva and his wife. You remember the story? Marukva and his wife. Again, we're, talking, we're not talking about the miracles of uh, Tanakh. I mean, we're talking about miracles in the Gemara. It's a much, much lower level. <laughs> but nevertheless, these are examples of Nisim Niglim, although I'm not going to go into the exact discussion of how they took place. But Marukva, the Gemara says that Marukva was running away. You remember this thing? Marukva and his wife, they used to give charity to a certain individual. They to put the money through his door. On one occasion, Marukva <coughs> um, and his wife walked past the man's house. <coughs> they put the money through his door. But the man was waiting to see who it was who was giving them the money. So he started to chase them. And in order not to embarrass him, because they did not want him to know who they were, they went into an oven. It was a baker's oven. <coughs> like a big oven, but fire. You know, lit, burning. And the Gemara brings the story, by the way, only to show you that it's better to go into a fire than to marry somebody. Not to tell you that they could survive in the fire. They went into the oven and they waited there. No, there's no problem. They never know hesitation. The story does go on to say, and again, it's probably a, almost certainly a misprint, that um, Marukva's feet started to get hot, but his wife did not. Why do I get into these things? <laughs> anyway, the Gemara says that Marukva's feet started to burn, and his wife did not. So she saw, she saw this, and she told him to stand on her feet. So in order to stop his feet from burning, Marukva stood on his wife's feet. And that's how they stood until the man went and they left. She saw that he was distressed. This is not directly our subject tonight. But she saw that he was distressed. Why was he distressed? Because, you know, his feet were burning and hers weren't. I mean, he wasn't, of course, he knew who she was. No, question that he wasn't surprised, you know, that she was. But the question is, like, you know, why is it that his body was protected from the fire but it's not his feet? And her body was protected from the fire and her feet as well. So she, when she saw his distress, she said to him, look, don't be upset. The reason that your feet were burning and mine were not, is that when people come around to the house, needing, you know, needy people, when they come around, I feed them, I, I feed them. And Rashi says an incredible comment. Rashi says, bread and salt. What's going on? 
What, what, what explanation is that? What was she telling you? And what's Rashi telling you? Bread and salt? <laughs> How does that explain anything? And I'm not going to go into full explanation now because it's a, it's a long, long subject based on the deeper wisdom, but <coughs> just a word, <coughs> just to show the depth, the beauty of these things. <coughs> Basically it means that if to understand this thoroughly we'll have to go into the nature of man and woman and that's a whole long discussion. But according to the deeper wisdom, the nature of a man is that he is the source or the beginning of a process and a woman is the end of a process, right? Just like a child is brought into the world, a man only gives a genetic instruction, that's all. But the woman brings the thing to its fulfillment, she brings it to life in the world. That's the difference between man and woman. Man is the point of origin and woman is the point of revelation. That's why we always refer to Hashem as male and the world as female. The point of origin, Hashem himself, Kibiyochad, is male, but his expression in his creation is female. That's always the parallel. It takes much more discussion, but <coughs> for now... <coughs> For now, that's what it is. Now, the, this progression of point of origin and result is reflected in the body. The head is the point of origin, that's why your thoughts and intentions take place in your head. And the body is the point of expression and application. And of course, the lowliest, the most physical part of the body is the feet. That's why this generation, I think we pointed it out before, is called Ikhfus of the Mashika. We are the footprints, we are the, foot, the soles of the feet of the human form. Avram Avinu, right? Avram Arishon, all the way, Avram Avinu, etc. They were the higher dimensions of the head, consciousness, thought, the heart. And we are the thick skin on the bottom of the feet. The, the sources say that we are dead, we're not alive. Just like the Gemara says that the souls are dead even when you're alive, because that's where the serpent bites. So we in our generation, we are nobody. We, we're the thick dead skin on the bottom of the feet, that's who we are. And that itself, again, is a, is, a, is a discussion in its own right. But the human form goes from the moment, the point of consciousness, the point of origin, all the way down to the maximum physicality and expression at the bottom. Man inhabits the top component, and woman inhabits the bottom. He's the point of origin, and she's the one who brings to fruition and fulfillment in the world. So she was saying to him the following thing, right? How do you give charity? How do you give stalker? You give money. When people are needy, what do you do? You give them money. How do we know? Because that's in fact what my offer used to do. He used to put the money through the man's door. What's wrong with giving money for tzedakah? Nothing wrong with it. It's wonderful. But there's a deficiency. The deficiency is it's not ready to eat. The person takes the money, they've got to go make the effort and buy the food and then eat. But being a woman, being a woman, how did she give tzedakah? She said, when people are needy, they come to the house, I feed them. And Rashi says, all the way down to the salt itself, not just the food, but the condiments. In other words, somebody's hungry, I feed them immediately. They, you understand? They come, they, I don't give them the potential to go and feed themselves. I actually feed them right down to the, every last detail they need. In other words, you as a man, you put condition into the world in the, in the role of potential. You're the beginning of a seed that begins the production of whatever will result. And therefore, your kedusha doesn't go all the way down to the bottom. Your kedusha is at the higher levels of potential, which is where you live. But I, as a woman who brings things into the world, and express things, and give, give, bring to fruition the relationship between husband and wife, or whatever it is that I bring, so I, you understand, my, my stalker goes all the way down to the fulfillment of what's needed, and therefore my kedusha goes right down to the bottom of my feet, and my body glows with the kedusha, right? Not just in its higher levels, but all the beautiful, beautiful idea. Anyway... Like I said, it's probably an error. Now, the, <coughs> the, but the point is this, that they were able to perform miracles at will. And there's dozens of dozens of stories that Gomorrah tells about people who revived the dead. Right? It says that by Rebbe, for example, one night, Rebbe was visited by Antoninus, you know, the Roman emperor, and uh, he came with two slaves to visit him through a secret tunnel. And when he w- entered the room, he killed one slave. And when he got back to the palace, he killed the other one. He didn't want anyone to know that he had been to see the Jewish thing. So when he killed the slave, 
and he stepped into the room, he discovered that Rebbe wasn't alone. Rebbe was there with one of the Tanoim of his base Medrash, and he was very upset, the Roman general, Roman Caesar. He said to Rebbe, I told you I didn't want anyone to be present. So Rebbe tried to say, well, he's not human, don't worry. And I, eventually he wasn't happy. So the Roman turned to the student, the Talmud, and he said to him, do me a favor, step out and ask my servant to come in, knowing that he was dead. He wanted to get rid of him. So Rebbe's Talmud stepped out into the passage and he found the corpse of the slave. So he found himself in a predicament. To disobey a king, you're not allowed to do that. Right? On the other hand, to schlep a corpse into the room, he's not exactly honor of a king either. So Gemara says, Bay Rach he and brought him back to life. Brought him back to life and brought him in. When, when Antoninus saw this, he said to Rebbe, I'm not impressed at all. I know that the lowliest and the smallest of your base marriage can do that. And the Gemara's got plenty of other examples of people reviving the dead and putting their feet over things and lighting vinegar and you, you name it, it's there, splitting rivers and... and, and uh. So the hallmark of a person at this level is that they can perform miracles. Now, let's ask the question why. This is one of the most beautiful things to understand. Okay, please try to stay with me through this because understanding this is one of the most sensitive, sensitively beautiful points that one can understand. Although this is way above our level, again, except for those of you, of course, who have reached it, for most of us, this is way above our level. Why can a person at this level perform miracles? Stay with me carefully. Let's ask the following question. When somebody's at the third level, that they see only Hashem, they do not see nature at all, what do they make of nature? They're not blind. Are you with me? Again, this person's not blind. This person that we've said sees everything as it really is, they see Hashem. But they see gravity. They see that when objects are dropped, they fall always down. They see that things are appearing to be routine. They see that there's a, a fabric of a physical world around them. They're not blind to that. What do they make of that? They un- Listen carefully. They understand that all of this is just a smokescreen. In order to have free will, Hashem doesn't reveal Himself openly. Because if he revealed himself openly, he wouldn't have free will. This is a standard and classic and absolutely basic concept. The reason he hides himself behind the world of nature <coughs> is because if he revealed himself, you couldn't do anything wrong. Imagine you're about to do an avera. You're about to say something juicy that's really going to hurt somebody's feelings. And as you say it, you see... You don't say it. How could you possibly do anything wrong if you saw him... And not only him, but the punishment and the consequences immediately. You couldn't do that. So he hides himself behind the mask of nature. Nature is a smokescreen. But the purpose of the smokescreen is for you to penetrate it. The purpose of the natural world is for you to see through it. Is that clear? It's a mask. It's not... When we say nature is an illusion, you have to be careful. It doesn't mean the world's illusory. The world is very, very real. It can hurt you very badly. You have to take very great care with the world. But the world is a, is a mask that is put up to hide the one who's behind the mask. Think for a moment. Is a smoke screen real or illusory? There's real smoke there. Are you with me? There is real smoke there. A mask, is it real or illusory? Well, there is a mask, but of course, it's an illusion. It's not the one who wears it. The world is there. But it's there to see through. Now, one who sees through it, you know why he can perform miracles? The world of nature, which is the world of a mask, is that everything that happens appears to be natural, that it always happens that way, it forms a habit pattern where you think that this is cause and effect, etc. One of these through it, let me give you an example. <coughs> You're sitting in a room. Suddenly the door opens and someone walks into the room. This person's wearing a mask. It's one of your friends, but you don't know who it is. They're wearing a mask and a disguise. 
and they start walking around speaking in a funny accent, and you cannot place who this person is. They're having a lot of fun kidding you with this strange mask, and you just can't place who the person is, and they're having a a whale of a time. Suddenly, after a few minutes, you realize who the person is, and you say their name. What do they do? Take off the mask. There's no point wearing a mask in front of one who sees through it. When a tzaddik reaches a high enough level, Hashem drops the natural, because he's seen through it anyway. You understand? When a tzaddik gets to a high enough level, he sees Hashem anyway. He doesn't need a smoke screen. He doesn't need that physical events always happen the same way. God's fooling him anyway. So Hashem drops it. What's the point? If he wants to make water burn, he wants to make vinegar burn. See, that's a vinegar. What's the only reason that vinegar doesn't burn for you, and oil does burn for you, is so you can be lulled into the habit of thinking that oil burns because it's natural and water doesn't burn because it doesn't burn. But if you don't see that, if you see that the one who says that oil should burn is the cause of the oil burning, and therefore if he could say that water should burn, it should burn just as well, if you see, if you see that, then water will burn for you. Are you with me? You see, you think that oil burns because it's a combustible mixture of hydrocarbons. That's what you think. But it's nonsense. Oil burns because he says so. Do you know if you brought up in a world where water burned, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be the least surprised. If you grew up in a world where water burned, would you have a problem? In fact, I know what you'd say. You'd say that water is H2O, right? Hydrogen and oxygen. It's the hydrogen burning in the presence of the oxygen. You'd have a perfect explanation. You wouldn't, you'd be totally happy. The only reason that you'd be surprised if water burned is because you're not used to it, that's all. Is this clear? And therefore, a person... Do you want, uh, by the way, if you want to check if you're on the third level... Just to confirm it, huh? <laughs> if you wish to confirm, those of you who've got like a slight doubt, you want to go home and just confirm that you're on the third level. Lock the door, because I don't anybody see you. Okay? <laughs> Person on the third level is very humble. So you lock the door, pour a little water into a cup and light it. No doubt, of course it'll, it'll burn for you, I've got no doubt. The question is, would you be surprised? <laughs> okay? If... <laughs> If you register the slightest flicker of surprise, you're way off this level. You, you, lost, you lost it long ago. Can you see this? The person on the third level doesn't see the natural. They don't see anything unique in the natural. When oil burns, they see Hashem making oil burn. If water burns, they see Hashem making water burn. It makes no difference. And therefore, Hashem doesn't bother to keep up the facade anymore. It takes off his mask for such a person. That's what it is to be a person on the third level. A person not surprised. Let me tell you one or two... <coughs> Let me tell you one or two incidents. I just want to illustrate this for you. At the level of our generation. Ah, I'll, tell you, I'll, just, I'll tell you two stories. I've got a friend. Again, I don't know if you believe me, but no. I'll tell you, you should look for these in your own life, but it's a way to build a mood, and children should be taught to see these things. I have a friend in, in Johannesburg, Neville Garb is his name. <coughs> he and his wife told me the following incident. <coughs> they decided to move their home. They wanted to move from a part of town where they were living, closer to, as it happens, where the yeshiva was, or Sameach, they wanted to get more involved. Like many South Africans, their grandparents and parents had been that the further back you went, the generations had been more involved. And in their generation, there had been a tendency to get less involved in Torah and mitzvahs, and therefore, they were finding their way back. And as part of their journey back, they wanted to move closer to a place where they could be more involved. 
But like all these moves, there's a lot of doubts. They want to perhaps, are they doing the correct thing? Aren't they? They bought a property in a place called Silvermont, for those of you who know Johannesburg, it's near Glen Hazel, it's right near where the issue is. They bought a property and they went to meet on the property. Now, they, she was standing in the middle of this plot of land. There was a house that had been demolished there. There was a house that had stood there before and it had been demolished. They were going to build their new home on that property. She was standing in the middle of the rubble and he walked towards her and as he approached her, she saw he was white and shaken. What happened? As he walked across the rubble, he saw a piece of paper or card sticking out from between the, 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 the rubble and the rocks. And although it's not his nature, for some reason he bent down and, pull, and pulled it out. It was a wedding photograph of his own parents that had been stolen from their house in Kensington 15 years before. It had a rust ring around where it had stood under a barrel on this property, right, all those years. And today it stands on the mantelpiece of the home that they built on this property in their journey back to what their parents... I mean, I, that, that's what happened. Now, when this happened to them, he was very, very overcome when this happened. And I'm sure you can understand. So he went to tell his Rebbe. His Rebbe happens to be one of the great Rabbonim of this generation, acknowledged as one of the leading things. He ran in to tell him and he told him this incredible story. So his Rebbe said to him, No. So he said, <laughs> I said, but it's incredible. His Rebbe could not understand the point of the story. <laughs> Let me tell you one that happened to me. It is a close friend of mine. That was present. I have a friend who lives in Zichon Yaakov. Shmuel Geller is a young American. Rav Rebbe teaches in the yeshiva there. Shmuel Geller has the following, following incident occurred to him. And I've got a whole story of these. If you <laughs> want to be kept late sometime, I'll, I'll tell you. Shmuel Geller, this is what happened to him. He happens to be the grandson of a very interesting man. His grandfather came from Galicia, and he ended up in a place called Galveston, Texas. And he was a very interesting man. He was in London, he was learned, and he was a shechet and a moel, and a rebbe. He started a cheder there, had a big family. They spread all over America. And today, there's third and fourth generation of that family. <laughs> and Shmuel Geller who's his grandson, who's named after him, he was Arab Shmuel Gallup, decided in his honor to write a book about his grandfather. So he wrote a book, of a family tree. It has on the cover, it's called From, Gal- From Galicia to Galveston, and it has a photograph of his grandfather, a little ship sailing the waves, and the book consists of a family description of all the members of the family all over the United States. <coughs> it tells the story of his grandfather. At the back of the book, in other words, if you, if you look at the book this way, it's called, it has an English title. If you turn it over, it has a Hebrew face. What he did from that side of the book was, he was given some manuscripts of his grandfather's that his grandfather had written when he was a young boy in Yeshiva in Galicia three, four generations ago. He had sat down and learned Gemara with a young friend of his, whoever it was, back all those years before, and they had made their notes and apparently they were very good. But no one had ever published them. And being that Shmuel was the one in the family who was most attached to these things that had come down to him. So in honor of his grandfather, he published them for the first time in his book. So on this side, the book says, from Galveston, from Galicia to Galveston, on that side it says, Chidushe Torah, the Torah ideas of Harab Shmuel Geller, and underneath his name, the name of whoever the young man was who had learnt with him and, and written these things all those years before. That's what it is, and the book was published. As soon as the book came out, Shmuel went to America with a whole suitcase full of them to go and visit all his uncles and, and cousins and aunts and give out copies of this book. To, they should know who their grandfather was. When he got into the plane in Tel Aviv, there was an empty seat next to him. 
and he happened to have a copy of his book with him. And it happened to be lying on the seat in the plane next to him. And it happened to be lying with the Hebrew side uppermost. And as he was belting, uh, buckling in, in for the seatbelt for takeoff, <coughs> a young Hezda Yeshiva Bocha, a young Israeli, about the same age as him, was walking down the aisle. Stopped, came back, looked again, looked at the book and said, Hey, that's my name. He was the grandson of the friend who had learned with Rabbi grandfather, named after his grandfather, just like he's named after his, and that's how they met each other. When this happened to him, I was present when he got back from America, and his Rebbe happens to be my Rebbe, and I was present at a Chaburah one day, when Shmuel ran in, totally beside himself, and he said, you have to hear this story, Sir Shapiro, listen to him very patiently, and he, and he told this whole story about how he met this young man that named yeah, how they'd met in this generation after their grandfathers had as he finished the story Rabbi Shapiro said to him no <laughs> <coughs> so Shmuel thought maybe he didn't hear he repeated the whole story again <laughs> and slowly after a long pause I'll never forget Rabbi Shapiro said to him Atame vili ra'aya shakadosh bochum manigasailam he said are you bringing me a proof that Hashem runs the world and he walked away so Shmuel said, I've all said fantastic, they're fantastic. So no, they're fantastic, we could not relate to the story. You see, if you live on a level where you see what you should see, then you don't need coincidences to <laughs> That's of course why we don't get excited about these things. <laughs> So a person on the third level is a person who is seeing through the mask of nature and of course the consequence is that the mask is taken off. It's a consequence of the fact that they see that it's an illusion or a smoke screen or a mask and therefore for them it's not needed. Right? That's a person on the third level. Let's just spend a minute, it's getting late, nearly ten, I just refer briefly to the fourth level. Next time Mr. Shem will try to deal with the levels of how we're supposed to engage the world. In other words, this is a level, these are levels of understanding. We, we need Mitzvah Hashem next time to understand deeply what do you do depending on the level that you're on. How do you make an effort in the world? After all, if, if the miraculous is occurring, then why do you need to make any effort? Why do you have to go out and earn a living, for example? Does that depend on your level? What do you do that calls the level into existence? Should you do less? Should you do more? It's a serious problem. So next time we'll try to work through that in detail, <coughs> trying to figure out how much effort <coughs> we are made we are meant to be making within the physical and how much we are meant to be seeing what comes from without the physical. Let me just refer to the fourth level for completion, although it's a difficult concept to understand as best as we can express it. What's wrong with the third level? <coughs> the fourth level is like this. It's really a completely Kabbalistic idea, but the fourth level is someone of course is on the third level, but they have an extra perception of what they experience on the third level. You see, when this person sees that there's a smokescreen or a mask that hides Hashem, they have a big problem. But look, stay carefully with me. This person now, they see through nature, they see that the whole natural world is a smokescreen so that you can have free will, and it's all put up as an illusion, but it causes them a tremendous problem. 
The problem is this. We have a principle that the whole world was created Hakol Boro Lichvoidoi. Hakol Boro Hashem created the whole world for His glory. Covered in, in, in deep Torah sources means revelation. Kavod means Gilui. It means the, that the, the Gemara says that my clothes are my covet, my dignity. It's the part of me that's revealed to the outside world. Right? Hashem created the whole world to, to reflect his, his covet, His glory. That means His revelation in the world is through the world. He reveals Himself in the creation. The reason that there is a creation is so that He can be revealed. The creation that He builds is stamped out of His image so that it reveals Him in the world. The, not to be drowned in nature like people at the very lowest level, but to see nature as a stamped out image that is B'Tselem Alukim. That the body, I'm sorry, I see from my own flesh His what he is. I see from the whole world his presence. The world reflects what he is. So then how could he create something that hides him? How could he create an illusion that hides his presence? If the whole point of creation, listen well, if the whole point of the creation is to reveal what Hashem is, how could he put something in that's a mask over that revelation? I know that he does it so you have free will. Fine! But I don't need that. I see through it anyway, this person on this level. They don't need that for free will. They no longer worked up to that level where they don't need it. So why? They have a lot of trouble. They have a lot of pain and a lot of trouble, as it were, at their level, seeing that there should be a smokescreen in front of that which should be revealed. Let me put it very plainly. A person on this level, when they see the miraculous, when they see a miracle, which is Hashem operating and revealing Himself in the world, to them that's natural. And when they see the natural, to them that's miraculous.